So I've been making podcasts for a few years now. You're probably aware of that if you listen to this show regularly. And I recently switched to Zencaster because podcasting is not always easy. But Zencaster is an all-in-one solution that is here to make podcasting easy. You can record directly through your browser, whether you have an audio podcast, a video podcast, or if you're like me and you record your podcast out in the field, you can still work with Zencaster's tools. It's there whether you want to build everything in your browser or whether you want to build it somewhere separately and then move it into your browser. Super easy to use audio or video podcast. They have post-production tools to help you sound your best, to take out the ums and ahs, to remove awkward pauses, to adjust your loudness and your levels for you. If you've ever heard me do this show and you thought, that seems pretty easy, I want to go make my own podcast. Well, you know, it is pretty easy if you go use Zencaster. Go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use my code GOPODCAST and you'll get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. I want you to have the same easy experience I do for all of my podcasting needs. I think it's time for you to go share your story. Welcome to episode 107 of the Go Get Outside podcast. This is your host, Jason Milligan. Welcome back. Welcome aboard. As many of you probably know, we've relaunched the show recently after a big three-year hiatus, and we're really hoping everyone can help spread the word and share the show as much as possible. And I promise to do a number of things to help you all do that, and I can happily report that I have finally completed those things. So now we have a Go Get Outside Instagram account, and a YouTube page, so you can even get this podcast through YouTube now. A few years ago, I don't think this was something you could do, but apparently now you can send your RSS feed directly to YouTube, so now YouTube is yet another place where you can get this podcast if that's where you like to listen to podcasts. So I'd greatly appreciate it if you would follow us both on Instagram and YouTube. You can find us at Go Get Outside Podcast at both of those places. Also, if you've never been to the website, gogetoutside.com, now is a great time to go back. I've refreshed the entire site. I've added a help out section, which is a great place to go if you do want to help this show, if you do want to share the show. There are links there to all sorts of images and videos you can share. There are links to our different sponsors and our discount codes. And there's just some general information about how you can help make this show successful. But it's also not just about that help out section. I've gone through and revamped every part of the site, including the video section and every episode of the individual podcast. If you've never gone to the website, I highly recommend it. Not only will you find the same information that are in the show notes for each episode, but I always include photos of the guests, sometimes videos, and it's very easy to navigate through the site. You can even go to a section where you can choose episodes based on topic where you can look at just a list of every episode and see if maybe you recognize some names of people you'd love to listen to. But I think that's enough housekeeping stuff. So let's get to today's show. Today, I am speaking with Scott Jensen. He is the founder of lightweight gear company Near Zero. He and I met up in early September while Eric and I were traveling the U.S. on a road trip and recorded this episode at a trailhead that is a pretty special place to him. 
So instead of taking up any more of your time, how about we head over to that trailhead in Arizona and have a conversation with Scott Jensen about family, living abroad, lightweight gear, how he formed his own company, and also how you can cook some eggs inside an orange peel. So if you're listening to this show, I know that you know that hydration is important. But hydration isn't just for super active activities. We need to stay hydrated all the time. I bet that when you are at work or when you're on a long road trip or you're traveling across country or across the world and you're spending a lot of time in airports, I bet you're not hydrating yourself enough. So yes, we know that hydration is important. It's important at all times. And that is what Liquid IV is here to help you do. And Liquid IV comes in a bunch of delicious flavors, 12 to be precise, including things such as sea berry, strawberry lemonade, lemon lime, pina colada, watermelon, strawberry, passion fruit, and it goes on. One stick of Liquid IV in 16 ounces of water hydrates you two times faster and more efficiently than water alone. And you want to know why? It contains five essential vitamins, B3, B5, B6, B12, vitamin C. It has three times the electrolytes of leading sports drinks, made with quality ingredients, non-GMO, and free from gluten, dairy, and soy for anyone with any sort of dietary restriction. But here's the thing that I think I like the most about Liquid IV. They are dedicated to equitable access to clean and abundant water across the world. So they're partnering with leading organizations to fund and foster innovative solutions that help communities protect both their water and their futures. To date, Liquid IV has donated over 39 million servings in over 50 countries around the world. Real people, real flavor, real hydrating. Get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use code GOPODCAST at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code GOPODCAST at liquidiv.com. Yeah, Scott Jensen. I'm the founder and owner of Near Zero. Founded about three years ago, and I quit my day job about two years ago. And uh, Near Zero does lightweight backpacking gear, making it easy for people to get out in the outdoors, get out and go with ready-to-go packs. So before we do get into that, let's get to know a little bit about you. So one of the things I love to do is usually start off with like childhood, where you grew up, how you grew up, and kind of what your story is and how you ended up as part of the outdoor community. It's actually kind of ironic where we're at right now. So we are in the areas where I first learned to go backpacking and grew up. So we're in Pine, Arizona. Uh, Pine's just about an hour and a half northeast of, of Phoenix. So I grew up in Mesa, Arizona which is a suburb of Phoenix. Just did a lot of camping with the family, went through the Boy Scouts program as a Cub Scout, became an Eagle Scout, and uh, spent a lot of time in these areas of the Pines, escaping the heat in the desert to get up into the cooler weather. So right now we're at the base of the rim, is what they call it. It's the Mogollon Rim. We're up in the Ponderosa Pines. And uh, this is where I had my childhood. 
uh, exploring these hills, exploring these mountains, uh, seeing the deer and the elk. Uh, there's bear up here. It's just in the fact that we're an hour and a half outside of Phoenix. It's a sacred place for me. Countless memories of backpacking with my dad. I've got five brothers and a sister spending a lot of time camping with them, either car camping or uh, in the backcountry with them. And then also I've got five kids of my own, taking them out here and teaching them about uh, the forest out in this area as well. Yeah, and the interesting thing, so you grew up in Phoenix, which is notorious for scorching hot temperatures. And if people are picturing Phoenix right now, they're not picturing where we are, which is a much lusher, forested area. So you said you started backpacking here. It sounds like your family was very much an outdoors family. What did that look like for you? Obviously included backpacking, but was it, were there other activities included there? Or were you also like a camping and fishing type family? Or there's definitely plenty of ATVs out here. There've been no shortage of those or dune buggies that we've seen coming in. So it seems like there's ample opportunity out here. So where did your family and your childhood fall into that? You know, growing up, I didn't have all the ATVs and the high all-terrain type of vehicles. I didn't grow up with a boat and things like that. We were on a budget. I was there seven of us in my family, as far as my siblings and my parents. So my parents brought us in the outdoors, especially my dad. My mom would come as, as trying to be a good sport, but primarily it was my dad. So teaching us about wilderness survival. So many times I built a fort just out of logs uh, from the forest and my dad teaching me that, teaching me about fire safety and how to use a pocket knife. Obviously a lot of that was taught through the Boy Scouts of America program where we would do regular monthly campouts. And so I became an Eagle Scout. My five brothers also became Eagle Scouts. So us six boys are all Eagle Scouts. And I would contribute a lot of that to my dad and uh, teaching us about proper use of the outdoors and safety and regularly going out. I think we should take a moment just to appreciate your mom, because it sounds like she was in a house with a husband, obviously. Five boys who were outside and probably filthy frequently. Uh-huh. And she, sure. was, she was stuck dealing with that with no other feminine energy in the house to help balance it out. So I just want to say that uh, your mom is probably a wonderful person who deserves a lot of respect. She is. She's a saint. I admire her so, so, so much for exactly what you said, putting up with it. Sure, she loved the fact that us six boys would get out of the house, right? And she was left in the home with my sister. So my oh, so there, it's, there's, so there is yeah, a sister. There's a okay. sister. She's the oldest. It's the oldest as a girl. She's now a grandmother of her own and has... Uh, some grandkids of her own. She also liked the outdoors, but not as much as, say, my dad with the boys. But yeah, she, my mom had to put up with a lot, you know, a lot of smoky clothes coming back into the house and a lot of dirt, as you mentioned. So you say you were a Boy Scout, you became an Eagle Scout. It sounds like the whole family was Boy Scout. So was your father the one that moved you all into Boy Scouts? Was he a Boy Scout before? Is this the sort of thing where as soon as you're old enough to be a Cub Scout, you slide into that program and it just sticks with everybody? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So a lot of it was through our church. Our church really sponsored and supported the scouting program. And my my dad was actively involved in that. He was a strong believer that uh, the outdoors is, you know, playground for the youth and kids, uh, both uh, boys and girls. Uh, now, he obviously had six boys and wasn't able to train as many girls in the outdoors, but uh, for boys especially, going through this program was fantastic. So my dad was not only actively involved with us six kids or six boys, but also uh, as a mentor for thousands of other right. youth as well. Um, in fact, he received the highest honorary award that the Boy Scouts of America provides, which is the Silver Beaver Award. 
He was awarded that in the mid-90s because of his devotion to the scouting program. So one thing I've definitely noticed with children and the outdoors is there can be reluctance in the children. It can be very difficult sometimes. Um, where did you fall on that spectrum? Or were you one of those kids that had to be really coaxed or did you just jump straight in? I was pretty independent. At the time when I was eight, our family was leaving in Missouri and we were living in an area that uh, was quite wooded. Uh, kind of a farmland. And I remember camping in the backyard in this basically crops and fields by myself. I didn't need my parent or a sibling or a friend to be with me. I was very independent. And I remember building a fire and cooking uh, eggs inside of oranges <laughs> that my dad taught me how to do. And he would he would kind of come out and just make sure I was safe. But I slept in the tent all night long at that age. Uh, I remember building a raft with my dad and uh, out of wood from the forest and learning how to lash, uh, do the lashings together and make this raft and feel like Tom Sawyer and eight years old. Mm-hmm. And I would go out after we built this raft, um, I would go out there by myself and just play. So ever since I was a young kid, I just loved the outdoors and being in fishing, getting a fish, fishing rod in my hand. I would come home with a dozen fish after fishing all day long by myself. And you come from a big family and it sounds like all the boys went through the Boy Scouts program. Mm-hmm. So was it a similar situation where you all grasped onto it and then it remained a part of your adulthood or have some of you kind of moved away from it? Yeah, I think they all have an appreciation for the outdoors. Um, I think I bonded the most with the outdoors. Uh, I would spend the most time. I have other siblings that, you know, they love the trees and studying about plants. One brother made an entire book about all the different types of vegetation in the outdoors. And he studied, he loved to study about plants and trees. Is he actually a botanist or he just no, loves it yeah, so much? He's, comp- he's, he's, he's like an honorary botanist. For sure. As a teenager, that's what he grafts to. I grasped more towards the camping and the fishing and bringing home trout and bass. And the other brothers, uh, other ones enjoyed the fun of it, you know, and the swimming in the lakes. Uh, the other one, other brother, grass towards mountain biking. So one of the things you mentioned is that you were out there cooking, you know, alone as a child, making eggs in an orange that you, your dad taught you how to do that. So now here's an opportunity for you to share that knowledge with however many people are going to hear that. How do you make eggs in an orange? Sure. Yeah. No, this is something that I just grew up doing, especially being from Phoenix, where there's so many, we, we grow a lot of citrus, right? And so we got oranges in our own backyard, orange trees. So yeah, you cut it in half, you hollow it out with a spoon. If you get a little knife, you can cut out all of that pulp. So you just have the um, orange peel and you can keep some of that pulp in there. It actually adds to the taste. So you, you cut it off the top about three quarters of the way. So you got you know a little bit of the top off and then you crack one or two eggs inside of the hollowed orange. If it's a big orange, you can easily fit two, sometimes three eggs inside. You put the top, which you've also hollowed out the top because when you cook it, the egg will expand. And so you gotta have some expansion room with inside of the egg. So you cover it. You cover it, so yeah, it's, with the so top. So it's almost like poaching. Yep, and then you wrap it up with tin foil. 
And so you wrap it up with tin foil and then you just throw it in the coals. Okay, so that's that's the part I was confused about. I'm like, how is he keeping the skin from just burning through? But okay, the tin exactly. foil makes a lot of sense. And we've got a video. I actually made a video a while back that uh, shows how to do it in about a minute. It's, yeah, I mean, uh, I, feel like, I feel like this is something everyone should give a try. Like, I'm going to have to try this at some point. It's fun. It's a very interesting. It's a very unique taste. I've taught... That's what I was going to ask, yeah. I've taught probably well over 100 uh, scouts and others how to do this uh, hands-on when we go camping. It's, it's fun. And I suppose you could use a variety of citrus. You could try lemons and any, sure. any number of other any other fruit and get a different taste entirely. Perhaps there could be a whole line <laughs> of fruit-infused uh, egg dishes. It's yeah. really good. And I think that I'd compare it the closest to is bell peppers with ground beef. Okay. So yeah, if you yeah. cook ground beef inside of a bell pepper, you can eat that bell pepper. And it uh, this is similar. I mean, you don't eat the uh, the orange the rind, peel right, yeah. necessarily. I mean, you could, I suppose. They don't, oh, yeah, they don't it's taste very, great. No, they're great. <laughs> Actually, I grew up eating egg, or, uh, orange peels. My mom loves them. Uh, a lot of vitamin C within it as well. But yeah, a little more of a bitter taste. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit more about your youth as well. Are there any seminal moments that pop to mind, like early backpacking trips that kind of opened up the world to you or that introduced you to like the struggles that were going to be inherent? Because one of the things that I think it sometimes takes people a while to get used to with outdoor pursuits is there... They're uncomfortable, they're dirty, there can be the struggle aspect to it. And some people have a hard time overcoming that barrier and then others just completely embrace that part. And then it makes all the reward so much richer because of the struggle. So is there any moment in your childhood that comes to mind where you maybe went out on a backpacking trip and experienced that or, or a moment that just kind of opened everything up to you where you're like, yeah, we do this all the time but now I really get it after this trip. As a child, I felt like I didn't really have any of those big aha moments because things were taken care of for me. Right. My dad, scout leaders, others would make sure we were safe. If we forgot something, they usually helped take care of it for us. So I was kind of in this little bubble of, mm-hmm. you know, of protection and safety. And so it wasn't until I became a young father our family moved to Portland, Oregon at that time. And my, my oldest son was uh, six years old when we moved to Portland. We lived in Portland for four years. I wanted to teach my son, my five-year-old, how to be in the outdoors. So now I'm the one that has to protect mm-hmm. him. I'm the one that has to teach him and try to remember all those things from the past. And that's when the aha moments really began. Because I didn't have a lot of money. I was doing an eight to five corporate job that we moved to Portland for, and I didn't have the gear, at least the proper gear. My sleeping bag was a Coleman sleeping bag I bought from Costco for like 30 bucks that weighed like eight pounds. There are so many stories on this show, <laughs> including my own, that begin there where it's almost always a Coleman. Yep. Which they're great. They're yeah, not bad. Yeah, for what they cost, stuff, yeah. they're not bad. For yeah, sure. you don't want to bring it 50 miles out into the wilderness, but they're not bad. And then you, you mentioned Costco. Yeah, it's always somewhere like Costco, Big Five, uh-huh. Kmart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're falling right into <laughs> the groove with all the rest of it. And I had my big green Coleman uh, propane tank, mm-hmm. you know, with my stove that was about three pounds that sat on mm-hmm. top or about two pounds that sat on top. And I remember my first backpacking trip together. We went to Eagle Creek Canyon up in the Columbia Gorge. Mm -hmm. And my son was six years old. 
And I had bought a secondhand backpack. It was someone from a- Afghanistan <laughs> that just came back and he sold it to me on like Craigslist. So like a military Military, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was, it was camouflage. Oh, it was a great, it yeah, was yeah, a Gregory very, pack. Very rugged. It had straps that you could quick release. And mm-hmm. so basically the whole backpack would quick engage and detach from you and for safety in case you're in combat. But it weighed like eight pounds. Right. You yeah. know, it was huge. It's like a 70 liter backpack, this mm-hmm. big stuff sack type thing. Yeah, that's what I started with. Not a rucksack, but a 70 liter pack because of my brain, which I've since learned better than this, I thought, well, get the biggest one because then it's the yeah. most versatile. Oh, everything, for sure. <laughs> and I don't have to, you know, scrap what I bring and yeah. bring it all. I don't have to own more than one backpack for if sure. I just have the biggest one. And that has its purpose. And it has its, you know, I actually use it now for my repelling bag. I keep all my ropes and my harnesses mm-hmm. in it, even to this day, because it, it'll last a lifetime. That right. canvas. Right. Oh, will, yeah, yeah. Will always, yeah, yeah. always be yeah. good. Your arm will break before your backpack. <laughs> yeah. 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 And the padding on it's incredible. So, but it weighed 60 pounds. Right, right. My first, I remember weighing it, it was like between 50. 55 and 60 pounds with water. My son's backpack, it weighed 12 pounds. I still remember this day. And he was six years old. <laughs> and he weighed, we were a 12 pound pack right. and I was carrying and a 60 he, And he pack. probably weighed what, like 30 pounds, yeah, 20, yeah. 35 pounds. Not much yeah. more than that. And so, and we had, we went backpacking five miles in, five miles out and a little detour. The whole backpacking trip ended up being about 12 miles and this is our first trip. We went to Tunnel Falls on Eagle Creek Canyon. If you've ever been in there, mm-hmm. we loved it. Yeah, it's a great spot. It's funny because <laughs> these are going to keep being canyoneering stories. We're near Payson. And the reason I've been to Payson before is I've done canyoneering out here. And the reason I've been to Eagle Creek is running that canyon there. And it's yeah, it's a beautiful canyon, beautiful, beautiful flow, nice waterfalls. It's a really yeah, great area. You pass so many waterfalls and we had a blast. But my pack was 60 pounds and his was 12 pounds. And when we got to the camp spot, which was just getting dark, there was another father camped with a couple of his kids and they had like the big Agnes tents and the mini stoves Mm. and all this lightweight gear. And I remember him not like vocally laughing at me, but like, (laughs) really, you brought that big propane tank? You fit that in there? You know, and I'm like feeling embarrassed and like, yeah, that's all I have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so for the next four years, my son and I went to REI garage sales Mm -hmm. again and again and again. We just started accumulating low cost, cheap, cheap gear, lighter and lighter and lighter. And that's when the aha moment happened. It was like, I love being out here. I love being with my son. I love these experiences, but we need to learn how to get lighter. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and one of the things I like to tell people is like, whatever your intro to backpacking story is, like you don't have to be embarrassed by it because mine, I had a Jansport backpack, going to school backpack with a sleeping bag from Walmart tied to the bottom of it. We had one of those tiny Coleman tents. I had no jacket because I grew up in Louisiana This was once I moved to California, but in Louisiana, it's hot during the day, it's hot at night. I didn't take into consideration in California, it's hot during the day, and then it drops to 40 degrees Mm -hmm. at night. So my my first backpacking trip, thankfully it wasn't terribly far in or far away, was, was a mess. I had no idea what I was doing. But same thing, I loved it and I learned, okay, I wanna do more of this, I better figure out how the hell to do this right. Yeah, yeah, a lot of lessons learned, you know, and it just keep, every time you get back from another camping trip, you learn something else. Think, oh, I wish I had this, mm-hmm. or I wish I could switch this. And so you're on that hunt. And so I spent years of hunting for through used gear sales, high quality, which would have cost me a fortune to buy it new, but used. I spent about 15 years going through that process before I realized, you know what? 
this is taking a lot of work and I've learned all these special tricks. Why not share it with everyone? And I spent 15 years in corporate supply chain working in China and Mexico for medical and aerospace device manufacturing companies. And so I started finding really good deals. And I'm like, I could actually get this stuff manufactured custom for a brand and make it affordable for people. Drop it half the price. If I'm direct to consumer and potentially even retail stores, I could find a way to still make it a feasible business and get it much more affordable for people that may not be, you know, it's not Dyneema materials, but it's good, good nylon material type things that's affordable, lightweight, and why not? And so my dad and I were actually going to start the business together in about 2018. 2018, I was working my corporate job and I was sick of it. I wanted out. Dad, you know, you know all the lightweight stuff. I've tested things too. I know how to get the stuff in China. I'm fluent in Mandarin Chinese. And I was going back and forth to China so frequently. And my dad said, yeah, I'll, I'll help you do a website and I'll help you do all the product testing and evaluation of stuff. You do the sourcing. And are you still in Portland at this time? Or no. You... So, yeah, good question. So I already moved back to Arizona. So my dad was still living in Arizona and he was retired. And was that because a different job opportunity came? Or Correct. Did you just, okay. Yeah. So a little backstory. I, I was in supply chain, Mandarin speaking, and I moved to Portland, Oregon to work for actually Tyco Electronics, TE Connectivity. And uh, we did all the product sourcing with moving production lines for medical devices from the U.S. to China. And my job was to locally source all those components in China as we moved production lines for major hospital brands. And then I was just there for four years before my wife got sick of the rain and our family mm-hmm. just realized, yeah, you know what? Yeah, quite a we, difference from, we need sunshine from again. Yeah, Phoenix to Portland. Yeah. yeah, for sure. But we still loved it. We camped every month of the year, rain or shine. But yeah, as a growing up for a family, Arizona was more familiar to us in the mm-hmm. sunshine. So, And their family was all in Arizona. And had you been back for a long time by the time 2018 came? Or was it very recent that you had just moved back? Yeah, good question. So let's see. We moved to Portland in 2007, and we were back in 2010. Okay, yeah. So, yeah, so several years before. Several years, yeah, about eight years um, of working corporate. I worked for Honeywell Aerospace for several years as well as Carlisle. And then in 2018, when I was doing another corporate job, I think I was at Honeywell at the time, uh, I was realizing, you know what, this clocking in, clocking out, the company was so good to me, but I was an entrepreneur and I love the outdoors. And so that's when we started thinking about doing it together. I imagine it was the same situation that I've dealt with and a lot of other people have dealt with, which at some point you realize your life's not your life. Someone else is dictating how you live your life. For sure. Yeah. And at the time, it was the right place for me. We needed stability. I needed mm-hmm. that steady paycheck. I was learning so much from these companies, mm-hmm. and they were so good to me. Honeywell supported me through my MBA program at Thunderbird. Um, and so I was working full-time at Honeywell while I was doing uh, my MBA online, and they supported me. And I would take trips to China and overseas, different countries, uh, managing supply chain uh, over there. In 2019, I got a job offer with Carlisle. Carlisle uh, Interconnect Technologies to do medical device manufacturing cables and for medical and aerospace in China. They relocated our entire family to China where I was an expat over there. We were there for two years before COVID hit. When I, I first was going back and forth every two weeks and part of that going back and forth of two, every two weeks, I was home for two weeks and um, my dad at age 71 died of an instant heart attack. 
Oh, so out of nowhere. Out of nowhere. He was at the prime of his life. Literally the year before, he hiked the Grand Canyon 13 times in one year. Think something you want to do on his bucket list. He's like, I want to hike the Grand Canyon every month of the year. <laughs> that is quite an undertaking. And several of those times were rim to rim, which is 24 right. miles. Most of the time, he would just be on the waiting list to go from South Rim, go down South, South Kayabab or down Bright Angel, stay mm-hmm. at the cabins down there, which is about, you know, nine like miles. Ranch area. Yeah, yeah. He would just stay at the cabins and then come back up. He's like, I'm retired. I can do this on a moment's notice. And so he would do that every month. And then him and my mom wanted to build a cabin. And so he quit doing the backpacking when he was 70. And at age 70, 71, he started building a cabin. And my dad's a general contractor. He built homes and large uh, other buildings and restaurants. And so about two miles from where we are right now, my dad bought a piece of property on about two acres of land. It was like dirt cheap. You know, he's like, I want it way out in the forest. I want it to back up to the national forest. And he wanted to build a home on stilts. And he really wanted to build it like solar energy and off of a well and just kind of be off the grid. Oh, nice. Yeah. So and it's like self, self-sustaining. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so he found a lot. Him and my mom did. And uh, they bought a little uh, trailer, a little fifth wheel trailer and parked it. And uh, just the two of them started building this cabin. And he built this with his own hands. And um, it took him about a year. And it was, sorry, I get a little emotional thinking no, about this. Totally because understandable. Uh, literally just as he finished this cabin, he, uh, he was playing pickleball with my brother and died of an instant heart attack. Oh, so your brother was there. When yeah. That happened. My brother's a doctor. My younger brother's actually a medical doctor. And uh, they, he passed away uh, instantly. It went to immediate uh, cardiac arrest. And my brother was not able to revive him. Uh, and they later found out that my dad had three of his of his arteries completely clogged, not even knowing it. But and because, there was just no sign. No sign. Was he case. was so active right. that he was pushing all that blood through one artery. And he's like, I'm healthy. I can do this. I can hike the Grand Canyon. I can build a cabin. And not even realizing what those arteries, how clogged they were. So um, he passed away at age 71. That was 2020? This was 2000, yeah, 2018. 2018. Oh, so right around the time you're talking about, talking yeah. with him about starting the business Exactly. Together. So we talked and about it. in China at this point? So, yeah. So let me back up a little bit. Um, and so I had had this job offer. I was doing back and forth with China, getting my family ready to move there full time. Mm-hmm. He passed away literally two months before our entire family was scheduled to finish the school year. Oh. He passed away in June and the kids, we were going to leave at the end of the summer to China as a family. And so in 2018, we moved to China as a full time Well, after my dad just had passed away. And so he had just finished the cabin. My mom was now left as a widow and we were worried about my mom. What a difficult mixture of things to deal with. So you're, you're, you're all moving to another country where not only is the culture different, but the language is completely different. The writing system is completely different. You're going to acclimate to that but you're also still dealing with the grief simultaneously. Exactly. And then there's probably a part of you that felt like you shouldn't move. Yeah, right? there is part of me, huge part of me that says I feel guilty leaving my right. mom. I mean, I got six siblings and we all grew up in Arizona and six, all of my six siblings have already moved out of Arizona. You know, all over the United States, a brother, another brother lives in Abu Dhabi outside of Dubai. He was there with his family. We're all in our careers. Everyone's doing different stuff. Right. And my mom's now left alone in Arizona by herself as a widow. And I remember telling my mom, I said, Mom, I'll give up this job. We'll stay here with you. And she says, no, it's something Dad wants. 
He's always wanted you to have an international right. experience. Right. And he wants you to follow your dreams. Do it. And so I followed through. 2018, we moved the family to China, southern China. And I worked in a factory of 3,000 employees, had a large supply chain team, and drove out costs for the company in order to help improve our profits and uh, clean up the quality control and auditing process of about 1,000 suppliers. And it was an awesome, awesome experience working for a fabulous company. Carlisle was so good to us. And they even said, hey, you know, we'll move your mom out here with you. We'll fly her out here. And they sent us home every six months to go see my mom and paid for everything. They put our kids in international schools and we had a great experience there. And we would have stayed there until after two years, I realized, you know what, it's time. How was it for the children? Great, excellent. My oldest was 16 and my youngest was five. And when we moved there, he was three. They loved it. They all went to the same international school together. They learned independence. They Mm -hmm. don't speak any Chinese, but they learned (laughs) how to get by and order a Big Mac at McDonald's, you know, and just point and grunt and, you know, taking the subway to school every single day. Mm -hmm. They, you know, if you ask any of them about their experience, they loved it. So I've known a number of people who have grown up in international schools in other countries, typically Asian countries. And I think a lot of people would assume yanking children, as they would probably refer to it, yanking children out of their life and putting them somewhere foreign is going to be traumatic and difficult. But everyone I've ever met who spent any time overseas uh, in an international school, when they talk about it, it's a, you can tell it's a great memory and they miss it. And then they have like this great adoration forever, wherever it was that they were living at that time. Absolutely. And that's exactly the kind of experience we had, too. We were living the true, lush, expat life Mm -hmm. where you have all the perks of the medical and traveling and the extra vacation. And so we got a chance to travel the world, you know, on our during Chinese New Year and different holiday times and come back to the U.S. And the kids love that. They really like that. Of course, they missed their friends, but they made new friends. Right. And uh, they, you know, with technology, stayed connected with their friends and with their phones. And and uh, it was it was really neat. We had our family come and visit us over there, too, and taking them to different sites and the Great Wall and different places. It was really, really neat. So you grow up here in Arizona. You're in Portland for four years, mm-hmm. back in Arizona, two years in China, and then you're back to Arizona again, right? Back yeah. Phoenix. So we had thought that we were going to move back in 2020. We started making plans for succession plan for me. We were going to move back later in 2020, and COVID hit. Right. So that just gave us all awakening. And so actually, I remember the day that uh, it was like January 28th of 2020. Right, because it because it hit China. Hit early. China early. Yeah. And in January, we just got back from Chinese New Year. The country just started shutting down. They shut down the kids' schools. They started shutting down transportation. They started shut, shutting down the different cities so you couldn't even get out. And grocery stores were getting uh, raided, or as far as hoarded. We just started realizing, wow, this is this is real. Yeah, I don't remember if you said which city were you in. We were in Dongguan, China. And where is that in relation to? Dongguan is just outside of Hong Kong, between Shenzhen and Guangzhou. Okay. It's one of those cities that maybe most people don't hear about because it only has eight million people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Um, but it's the tenth largest city. A lot of manufacturing down there in southern China. Wuhan um, or Hubei, where this this epicenter, the beginning, kind of where people claim that the mm-hmm. beginning was, was about 800 miles away from us. So okay. it's still further away, but it starts spreading real quick right. after Chinese New Year just hit and people are 
had been traveling. And so a lot of face masks and it just became scary. And so the company actually said, hey, we want to make sure you're safe. Let's have you guys go back to the U.S. for a couple of weeks. We'll fly you out back home. Just take a temporary vacation and then we'll bring you back to China. And so we had a dog. We just got a dog for Christmas. We had to put it in boarding. We still had clothes in the dryer. We still had, you know, dishes in the sink. Because you thought you were coming back. We were leaving back. back for two weeks. Right, right. And so we just thought, yeah, we're just temporarily leaving. Kids still have their books in their lockers at school. And three years later, we've never been back. Right. Man, those must be some musty clothes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, a lot of story. And our dog, it took us eight months to get our dog back to us in the United States. That's another podcast, another story. So so you do have that dog We have that dog today. Yeah, it's Toby, a little poodle, just a wonderful dog. We got reunited. Just beautiful story on how we were able to reunite with our dog after trying but, but and trying and trying. It was, was it in the kennel for eight months? No, or? a sweet lady from Poland uh, basically adopted him temporarily. So it was only at the kennel at the uh, boarding place for about a month. She was so kind and just uh, brought this dog into her home and trained him and helped him. And and then very hard giving him back up to us. Oh, yeah, I bet. To a friend that brought him on an airplane back to us eight months later. So, but yeah, yeah, it was quite the experience. Yeah. What a time to be there. It's got to be very odd to think you're leaving somewhere temporarily and then find out it's permanent. Mm -hmm. Did you leave most of your belongings here in the U.S. knowing you're eventually coming back or had you also moved your belongings to China? Yeah, good question. So the company actually sent a container of stuff of the key things that we wanted. Mm -hmm. Right. We didn't bring our couch and, you know, beds, some of that stuff we just bought there. But, yeah, we had things shipped to us over there. So we felt like it was home in China for us. Um, And then other things we put in storage. And then we actually rented out our home Mm -hmm. while we were in China. Uh, Just did a lease for two years to somebody or a year and a half to somebody. But that's another story in itself. We came back to the U.S. early and we ended up having to kick them out. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) because we wanted to get back. But that all worked out. It was just answer to prayers on the timing with that, that family being so good of moving out and being accommodating to letting us uh, move back in our home a little earlier than expected. And so all the belongings that you did send to China, are they still there? Did you also have to get those shipped back here? That took about a year. Oh, yeah, because wow. as you know, a lot of the uh, transportation lines kind of yeah. shut down and it's hard to get things out of there. And so uh, almost a year later, we were able to get a, a container of our things and belongings brought back to us. Any kids have uh, really valuable toys that got left behind that they had to go a whole year without? It was like Christmas morning when this <laughs> container showed up in front of our home and they started going through their their toys, you know, right. their Legos and the teddy bear and their pillows and the bike and all these things. It was literally like Christmas morning right. to open those boxes again and reuniting with uh, their old their old things. So when you get back to the U.S., you think it's temporary. It's obviously not. So you've got to get resettled here, and then you also have to figure out what's going to happen from there. So do you stay with the same company, and then now you're just back to being a U.S. operative, or yeah, did a, things change entirely? Great question. So as we all remember, kind of during those COVID times, right, working from home and remotely and not really knowing what's going to happen, Um, And so I was in transition, still working from home, my job in China for several months Mm -hmm. until we realized this COVID thing's not going away. It's getting worse and worse. Yeah, some would say it still hasn't. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Three years later. And so the company uh, was so kind to me. Like I said, I've got all the the best uh, recommendations about Carlisle. 
they they had a corporate headquarters. And Carlisle is like a $5 billion company, and they'd have many different business units. And I worked for one business unit. But they offered me a new job at corporate headquarters. So a few months after, I had moved back, uh, which was in Scottsdale, Arizona. So it was about a 30-minute commute. I worked that corporate job for about a year. And through that experience, realizing I either needed to be back into a factory I need to be back with the people again and being able to be out and, you know, seeing people and seeing the, the suppliers or I needed to start my own business. Right. So you're, you've changed from hands-on in China yes. to office. Yes. And trying to direct on a global scale. I was the director of global supply chain. All these, you know, working. I was f- focused on one business unit, mm-hmm. but in an environment that wasn't quite me. But like I said, they, they really, really tried to helped me feel comfortable and providing training and even provided, you know, a mentor and coach to help me try to make my, make me fit. Right. Um, You can't force a cylinder into a square. Yeah. And I kind of felt that way. And I felt like I was doing injustice to them too, because Mm -hmm. of my passion for, for entrepreneurship. And, uh, and so through several conversations with my boss and things, we, we split ways and they were so good with that transition and that's when Near Zero began full-time. While we were in China, I was actually as a little bit of a side hustle on the weekends, just scoping out to find camping gear. I established the company, set it up in 2019, about a year after being there in China. And so when we moved back to the U.S., I had already set up like an Amazon store and set up selling some of these products with a website. And so I did that kind of as a side hustle for that first year. I wasn't cold turkey, you know, leaving the corporate job and now starting a new business. Uh, things had already started with that transition. And so that's when I began Near Zero full time. Yeah. So let's talk about Near Zero. So we've, we've talked mm-hmm. about the why to a certain degree mm-hmm. already and, and the how. Uh, but let's talk about what, you know, people would call the mission statement of the company. What is its particular purpose versus any other outdoor related brand? Yeah, it's backpacking made simple. As we know, backpacking especially can be very complicated. You know, car camping alone can be complicated, but now putting all those items into a small square box that needs to weigh preferably under 20, 25 pounds Mm -hmm. is a very difficult task and very expensive. And so the brand is focused on, like your podcast mentions, get out and go, Mm -hmm. is a ready-to-go pack that has high-quality, affordable products in it that are lightweight. That's the mission statement of the company is making it easy for people to get out and go with ready to go solutions. So we started not as a ready to go solutions provider. We started first, you know, working about 30 different part numbers or SKUs to manufacture the best tent. Oh, so you so you originally started as a tent company. Yeah, yeah. We did tents, uh, shovels, sleeping bags primarily and oh. sleeping pads. And so our first products on Amazon were an ultralight backpacking tent that weighed three pounds, five ounces, two person, freestanding. So it'd be similar to a Nemo, a Big Agnes, uh, MSR type of quality, but at half the price. Actually, at the time, less than half the price at the time. And so we sold a lot of tents, a lot of footprints, and then downfield uh, sleeping bags. And so those we started with too. And so I wanted to make sure that the tents were good. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't want to put it in a kit and a ready to go pack that someone's going to pay, say, you know, a thousand bucks for and it being a cheap tent or sleeping on a cheap pad or not having a good downfield sleeping bag. I wanted to have these things proven. Mm-hmm. 
So it took us three years. I actually started before doing all these products on the backpack. But the backpack's so unique that it took 10 iterations to do over three, three years of period of time. And so we were trying to create individual products that eventually go into a kit. It's always been planned was do a back, you know, a ready-to-go kit. We didn't want to do it all at once, nor did I have the funding to do right, it all right, at once. Right. What does the testing process look like for that? So, I mean, you've got to build a prototype, and then I imagine people have to then take that prototype or multiple prototypes out into the wilderness and try to break it as much as they can? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. We broke it a lot of times. <laughs> uh, I did. I hiked Grand Canyon twice with it by myself. I've been all over the world with one of these. I had people go on multiple day journeys for the backpack. Other products I had tested with a family member in New Zealand for 500 miles over three months using exclusively near zero sleeping bags and just testing each individual product. But specifically to the backpack, yeah, it took... 10 different prototypes with getting a new prototype in, testing it, challenging it, being like, it's just not right. I need another pocket here. I got to change the material there. The zipper's not right. The frame was the hardest thing to do because it has an internal aluminum frame and it, you know, hitting my back or hitting someone right. else's back and rubbing, spot, rubbing yeah. in the wrong spot and or the torso. Shifts the weight into exactly. the Exactly. Yeah. And the pads and the way it fit and not being big enough or being too big went through multiple liter sizes and just, you know, the, the, anyway. So I think, right, what's next to us is the 10th iteration of this pack? This would be considered like the 12th. The 12th? Yeah. So we did, we went through 10 or 11 iterations before we released the first production. Gotcha, gotcha. So no one else could buy this. We just went through prototypes before we actually released it and submit for patent. So after 10 iterations, then I submitted for a patent pending Mm -hmm. thing, which was a year ago, right, right before we launched it and could actually share it to the public. So how drastically different would you say what we're looking at right here, which is roughly the 12th iteration is versus your first prototype? Oh. <laughs> like is, is the yeah. is the structure and the scaffolding even the same? Yeah, no, absolutely. So okay. structure is the same. We actually wanted it to be a duffel bag first. And so it had a detachable back frame. So you could then now have the whole thing detached from the, heart, the, uh, the, the straps for international travelers especially. So if you get mm-hmm. to a hotel room and you, don't, you want it just as a travel bag, uh, you could also do that. Um, and we've looked at other things, but it made it too cumbersome, too heavy, too complicated. We, this thing needed to be simple. Right. And but, yet another thing that can break. For sure. Yeah. But even the first iteration still had the same concept. The opening was the same. The U-shape type of uh, zipper um, was the same. The compartmentalized system was the same. We tweaked things up and made it lighter and and whatnot. Um, but the concept was has always been the same. It's just the functionality and the wear and the materials have evolved significantly. You just mentioned a couple of things. Tell us about what makes this bag unique and, and what the goal was for this versus any other pack that you could pick up. Yeah, and so is you and I both, right? We've used those, I'm going to call it stuff sack, you know, top loading yeah. type of packs our whole life. And there's a purpose for it and reason for it, right? Especially, uh, you know, making sure that water doesn't get inside of there and things don't fall out. But when you get to your campsite, you're pulling everything out. And then when you get done camping, you're stuffing everything back right. in there and you don't even know what's inside. Where I hike around in the West, we have to carry bear canisters very yep. frequently. So a lot of it turns into why well, that bear canister needs to go in first because I don't need it during the day and it's heavy. So it needs to be near the center of my back. And then I've really got to think about how I layer everything on top of it. Definitely times throughout the day where I'll stop, 
realize something is somewhere else than where I would have wanted it to be. Mm -hmm. And so I just don't access it till the end of the day. Exactly. And I felt the same way too, again and again. And then you add complications and now backpacking with family and kids. Right. And trying to remember their items too. Yeah. Yeah. And then also with scouts. I was a scout master for four years while I was iterating this backpack. And so I would go with these young boys, 12 to 14 years old, and trying to now with 10 or 12 of them, making sure they're covered. And so doing pack checks every single camp out, having them bring the packs to my house, pulling everything out of their backpack and saying, did you bring this? Did you bring that? Giving them a checklist. And so trying to prepare other people too. And I thought there's got to be a better way. We've got to make this so you don't have to spend hours preparing and create a storyboard of products <laughs> laid out all of your family room with trying to determine, do you have everything? Now the storyboard, the drawing board is the backpack. Mm -hmm. It opens up with compartments and labels in there and I don't have to lay it all out. I lay it in the backpack and I can physically see if I have the right items. Maybe someone listening is going to the website now and, and looking at it, but if they're not, what we're looking at is a pack that instead of it being that top loader like you're saying the front zips open entirely you can lay down the pack and you can see all of its contents at once which for me coming from a film production world there are a number of video camera backpacks that have taken this approach but those are pretty much the only type of backpacks i've seen taking this approach i don't think i've seen a backpacking pack take this approach so yeah explain to us how you've got this broken down sure yeah that uh, we've actually compared it to a camera bag a lot uh, that's the closest thing that you could compare it to is a photography bag um, but photography bags is generally velcro with foam padding mm -hmm. right and, and they're not intended to be carried for 12 hours no a day. no and that foam padding takes a lot of real estate inside of your backpack so we've followed a similar approach, but instead of foam padding and more restrictive things, it's just mesh. In the mesh on the top is actually a hardened uh, material plastic that keeps more of a rigid feel. So th the, the mesh isn't flapping around everywhere, but still only adds about one ounce to the whole backpack with quick release little clips so that if okay. you wanted to take them out, you can take out the entire internal system in about 10 seconds. Okay, yeah, I was going to ask you about that, if you wanted to remove the mesh for whatever reason or if you wanted to adjust its positioning. Yep. So. Actually, all those clips, I, you know, under, un, under 30 seconds, you can get every single one. So there's just a real quick little snap and it uh, comes off. And then inside of each section is a screen printed label. So it says tent, it says sleeping pad, it says cookware, it says tent. And the reason why we did that is not that it necessarily has to be backpacking for dummies, mm -hmm. you know, but even for myself, unless I really YouTubed it and tried to figure it out, like where do I put my sleeping bag? Where it's should also, I put it for weight distribution? It's also just helpful to in the morning when you wake up and you're groggy and you need to put your stuff away in your pack. Yeah, it's labeled, you know yeah, where it goes. Yeah. yeah, so it kind of forces you to get in the habit of, okay, no, the sleeping bag needs to go on the bottom your tent should go in the middle. And it also creates, because the backpack only weighs three pounds, there's not a lot of structure to it. It Sure, it has an internal uh, aluminum frame to it, but because of the way that you pack your items, it also adds additional firmness to the backpack and structure to it. So you, not only having weight distribution, but it feels really good. You're putting this pack on like, wow. How does it fit so good on me? It's a lot is because of the way it's organized. Let's take a look inside of it a little bit. So yeah, right here you'll see the sleeping pad. Over here on the left-hand side and right above it is the cook set. Inside the cook set is your propane tank, your stove, 
In this specific kit, we're doing a aluminum kettle. We also provide titanium pots. And then that's all put together in the cook set area. The very, very bottom is gonna be your sleeping bag. And your sleeping bag, the one that we have in here right now is a quilt, a 45 degree quilt, and it really could be used for any size person. It's six feet two high, and it's a three-in-one type of sleeping bag. So you can zip it up in the entire length of your body, or you can unzip it as a quilt and just have it by your, you know, zip down by your feet, or you can unzip the entire thing and use it as a blanket. Or you can actually zip two together and have queen size for two people. So it makes it really nice for uh, couples as well. Or if you just want something large. And then we will be releasing later this year uh, a 20 degree quilt. And this quilt will attach to the sleeping pad. And we offer many different sleeping bags. I could go on and on about the sleeping bags options. And then right above the sleeping bag in the middle section of it says tent. And that tent area is designed for a tent. Uh, you could put other brand tents in the same spot that are similar quality and weight. Right, similar and probably similar length. Yeah, also. even some Kelties will go in there. Definitely a Nemo or a Big Agnes, an MSR. Those types of tents uh, would all fit in the same spot as well. And I can put up to a three-person tent in that spot. And then the sleeping bag, the new 55-liter pack can actually hold up to a zero degree bag. Oh, nice. So I can actually have a long length zero degree, zero degree bag with a three person tent all fitting within this 55 liter backpack with the other items as well, sleeping pad, cookware. And then one other side of it, the opposite side of the sleeping pad and the cook set is another section for miscellaneous. And actually that's where we put a chair. We actually include a little stool, your water filter, your cup. So if you want to like a, a coffee cup, your pillow, fits in there. If you want to bring a footprint for the tent, paracord, other kind of things like that, miscellaneous will all fit in that smaller section. Yeah. And then I see on the flap that opens up, there's separate mesh pockets, which right now you have some peak uh, meals in there, which uh, I've recently discovered peak meals also and am a fan of them because they provide a lot of calories and some of them are quite good. Yeah. So we actually are a wholesaler for peak. Uh, peak has agreed to having us sell their products inside of this bundle and we sell them also individually online with a wide selection of meals. The uh, reason why we also use Peak is they fit perfectly inside these pouches. So I can actually put uh, up to four meals inside of these two pouches on the new 55 liter pack, which is a little bit bigger than our original uh, 50 liter. So you can put food there as well as other people say, after I put all these items in, in there, where do I put more food? Where do I put all my clothes? <laughs> right, right. Uh, well, one, we usually as backpackers don't take a lot of clothes. Mm -hmm. uh, we try to be conservative with that, but you can. I, in fact, I've tested this, that I can put a two person tent, sleeping bag, all the things I just described and fit another tent inside of the new 55 liter one. Well, and like I've told you, I'm not a chair person for me, I'm thinking, oh, that whole chair spot, I could fit a ton of things right there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so if you rearrange stuff, certainly you can save extra space. And now other people say, what about bear canister? Where do I put that? Where do I put my, my shoes, my Tevas? Uh, where do I put my down jacket? And so we've made a very large mesh pocket on the outside with a bungee cord. So the bungee cord, uh, you can attach a bear canister on the outside of that. Um, or based upon if it's a bear bag or smaller bear canister, you could also put that in the mesh pocket out here. And I would say your shoes belong on the outside of your pack anyway. Absolutely. It be inside your pack. Yeah, so we have several attached loops that you can now daisy chain it to with a carabiner. 
um, as well as a clip, a buckle clip that you can easily attach things to uh, with things like uh, shoes or wet clothing. I mean, it also looks like you've got some side pockets, probably for water bottles or, or various things, um, maybe a backcountry bidet, mm-hmm. which I'm a fan of. Uh, but then I also noticed some zip pockets up towards the top on the side. Is that what that is? Or is that to open a separate top pouch? Yeah, yeah. I'll talk through those too. Oh my goodness. You're, you're <laughs> just giving me the perfect pitches here. So side hey, I'm pockets. I'm taking the tour. <laughs> the side pockets are very deep. In fact, you could put a tent or a larger pad mm. inside of there. Which he just did. He just placed the pad in there. Yep. So the pad will fit in there if you don't. Otherwise, you can, you know, your, your Nalgene water bottles, your large ones, uh, 48 ounce ones will fit easily in there. Obviously, your 32 ounce ones will fit on there's two of those and they stretch and so you can put a lot of stuff on si- on the side it also has trekking pole loops so you can put trekking pole loops across the front of it with the loops on the bottom or you can put the trekking pole loops attached to the side straps and, and cinch it down with the side straps uh, you talked about the top so we wanted to make the top an okay, organizational yep. system so rather than we call it the brain of mm-hmm. the backpack or people a lot of people use it as like a fanny pack detached from the top of their pack we built it into the backpack so now you can fit your miscellaneous items and this is all labeled by the way inside of it with see-through mesh so you we put all of the hygiene kit items in the miscellaneous which includes your pack out bags your biodegradable soap cleaning towels toothbrush toilet paper all those in a small little pouch that we also sell individually on the website and then fire starting kit matches fire starters that will last 10 minutes for your starting your fire or a a fire beaner now obviously you save more room if you're not going to have a campfire and you can eliminate mm-hmm. those things. And then first aid kit. We want to make sure first aid kit is easily accessible. And so we've added a separate pouch for first aid kits with labeled first aid. And then light, the headlamp. You know, you're always getting your campsite. Like, Where did I put that yeah, darn yeah. thing, right? And so we actually have it labeled with a small see-through pouch up there in the brain for the uh, the light. And then you've also got some of those waist strap pouches I noticed on the front where you can put snacks or if you prefer to keep your light there. Or yeah. Absolutely, yeah. So they're very large. You can easily fit a phone and snacks in the same pouch. So very large um, hip pouch pockets. So yeah, you could put your, your chapstick in there, bug spray, your snacks, other things inside of the hip pouch pockets. I also see what looks like a section for a hydration bladder for those who want a hydration bladder, correct? Yes, uh, absolutely. So that was something that I absolutely hate is with the standard top loading backpacks, you have to take out all of your gear in order to put a hydration bladder in it. Or some packs let you slide it in on the outside, but even those, once they get constricted and fill, it's very hard to get the bladder out. For sure. And so because of the way that this backpack is uh, designed with the airflow mesh, so it, the backpack bows similar to, you know, say like an Osprey Exos. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the Osprey backpacks that have that open air uh, back that allows us to have additional... Uh, flexible space for your water bladder. So we have a separate access panel so you can now put your water bladder separately that's detached and wouldn't get the items wet in the inside contents. Right, should it leak. Should it leak. But also where it should fit based upon weight distribution with your heaviest items. And so it will bulge out a little bit if it's all the way full, Mm -hmm. but barely touching your back because of the way that it bows. Show favorite, my wife Erica is here pointing at things, trying to be quiet so we don't hear that she's here. What, what is she pointing at? Yeah, so Erica's pointing out there. Oh, the separate side Yeah, pouch. separate side pouches. And so, you know, if you want other things, pocket knife, if you want to add bug spray, other snacks, water safe things, uh, easily accessible. There's two outside pockets. 
On the newest iteration of the 55 liter, we added a second pocket on the side, and this is a water sealed pocket. So we added additional water sealed oh, nice. yeah, nylon yeah, over the that. top, and then also a key hook. So if you want to put your fob, your keys, extra safe, it fits perfectly so inside of there. So speaking of that water sealed pocket, what about Rainfly, a rain cover for this? Does it have one? Does it need one? Great question. <laughs> so, oh yeah, I see it right yeah, there. Yeah, so a lot of backpacks don't use up the real estate and wait for a separate rain cover, right, for a, a backpack cover. We felt important to do it. We've had report after report about our backpacks just doing amazing jobs in the rain. Um, but growing up in Portland where it rains the entire time, I just want extra safety. The packs that don't come with the rain cover, it's really easy to forget to grab one before Correct. you leave and you get out there and you realize, oh no, I didn't bring one. And you have a rain poncho and you're trying to get the rain poncho to fit over your backpack as well as you and, you know, or do I pre protect the items when I just wear my rain jacket? And so we actually included one. And so there's a separate access panel with a near-zero rain cover that will cover the backpack perfectly. Now, reason why I say that the backpack alone, even without the rain cover, does great is because every single one of our zippers are silicone-sealed YKK zippers. Oh, okay. yeah. So YKK meaning the top-of-the-line brand uh, quality of a zipper. We did not go short on quality with the backpack. And so every single zipper, including the hip pouch pockets, have water-sealed zippers. Now, it's not full waterproof. To get a full waterproof bag that you can completely submerge in the water is a different story and a lot heavier. You lose breathability. Exactly. And, then, yep. and it can easily get damaged. And yeah, yeah. So we selected a specific YKK zipper uh, that is still very, very water-resistant, as well as the nylon materials that we used on here, ripstop nylon, that are also extremely water-resistant. So when you couple that with now doing a rain cover, it's very protected. And also another reason for doing this is a lot of backpackers will use internal water stuff. So they'll put all of their contents and sleeping bags and everything inside of a garbage bag mm -hmm. and then put the garbage bag inside of their backpack. And they will protect it from the inside out, not outside in. Mm -hmm. And so because of our dividing system in here, it's much harder to now stuff everything in a garbage bag, throw it inside. And so we have to take an outside-in type of approach versus inside-out. So it is very, very water-protected, but still keep an organizational system inside like you can't do with, you know, throwing everything inside of a, a, a garbage bag. So you said this is a 55-liter bag, correct? Correct. Where do you feel like this fits in backpacking? Do you feel like it's for trips of a certain length or certain type, or do you think it works across the board? Yeah, no, good question. So we've had customers take it for two weeks. I've got some people that have done Appalachian trails for two weeks on it. The 50 liter, I don't recommend it. The 50 liter especially is for that weekend warrior. It's for, you know, one, maybe two nights, um, unless you can really cut short without a tent um, and you're using a tarp. Where it has worked well for people doing two weeks in it is because either they're sleeping in hammocks or they attach the tent to the bottom. So one thing we didn't cover in the backpack is it also has bottom straps, so adjustable straps on the bottom for attaching additional gear. The tent's a perfect place for that. So when you take the tent out of your internal frame, you can now add two weeks of food inside of there with additional clothing. So as long as you're doing that, yes, it can still work. The 55 liter is another, is a, I think it's a game changer. So that five liter difference, you think? Makes, it makes, uh, makes a huge difference. And I think we are very conservative with only advertising it as a 55. I think it's actually a 58 or a 60. We did do a lot of testing with our factory to confirm that it is at least a 55. 
but some reports have been 58 and 60 compared to a true 50 as the last one. Hey, I can tell you as a consumer, I would much appreciate you under-reporting and then me realizing, wow, it holds a lot more than I expect. For sure. And I buy what says it's a 60 and it can't hold 60 liters. Yep, and that's the way that we did this one too. Yeah. We've stuffed it and stuffed it and then doing all the different types of tests to confirm that it was at least 55. And it truly is. It only added 0.8 pounds, so less than a pound, adding that much more volume to it, adding the separate rain fly cover, adding a rain fly, as well as the additional features that we just talked about. So it didn't add a whole lot of additional weight, but added a lot more capacity to if it. If your testers are getting a week or two out of it, then in my, in my mind, that means you can use it indefinitely because it is rare that you're going to hike a long distance trail where you don't resupply every week anyway. So yeah, if you can last a week in that pack, then you can last a year in that pack, I would think. For sure. Absolutely. Yeah. No, it's um, it's been a great one. People think, how in the world can I put everything in a 50, 55 liter? I'm used to doing a 70 liter backpack. Well, I always got a question, what are you putting in that 70 liter backpack? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's why Near Zero is so different from other brands is we our products are so small, so lightweight, compact, that using our products or similar brand quality products they fit. Well, and you mentioned that you wanted to think of this as a kit. And, and when you opened it, it was very clear why, because you have built products that are intended to work with your packs and that fit within the parameters of the, the interior of that pack. So I'm sure you can buy the pack on its own. Can you buy it as a pre-packed kit where it comes with the recommended pad and the recommended tent and all of that? Is that something you offer as well? Yeah, absolutely. And on our website, actually, it will show all the dimensions of just the backpack alone. So if you already have a sleeping bag, you already have another tent, measure it and you'll we'll provide the measurements that show you exactly if your items will fit inside. Most, like I said, will. Now, if you want to bundle it, that's what we specialize in. So right now we offer a 5, 20, and 30 item bundles. So we'll be changing those names soon uh, that will be released later this fall to basically you're going to have, we'll actually be offering four. So you'll have a mini backpack, which doesn't include a tent, and that's for a 20-liter backpack that comes everything you need for a kid. So they're going to carry their own sleeping bag, pad, pillow, headlamp. There's eight items, including the small backpack, and it weighs five pounds. And that's strictly kid sizes, or could that be a day pack for adults? Absolutely. So a day pack for adults or that adult that we're, we're, in a minute I'll tell you, introduce this one called a sidekick. Got a lot of people to say, hey, I am uh, going with my husband or I'm going with my wife and she or he is carrying the shared items. I don't need to carry all that. I'm a minimalist. So this little fit, this little 20 liter backpack is incredible and you can fit basically everything a child, a youth, or that minimalist wants inside of this small, and we're calling it the mini. And the way, like I said, it weighs five pounds, and that includes a sleeping bag, includes the sleeping pad, which is a thermo-insulated three-inch thick pad, as well as uh, some key other items. And then a step up from that's going to be the sidekick. Let me, let me back up. Before I mention the sidekick, let me mention the step up from the, the mini, which is the big four. The big four is going to be your backpack, your sleeping bag, your tent, and your pad. Right, industry standard. We all know those are your big, big, heavy four items, and you can buy just those alone. And then a step up from that is the Sidekick. And the Sidekick is the ready-to-go backpack, which has everything you need basically to get out and go. And that is everything we just described in the backpack. And there's 25 items in there that includes a water filter. And then the only thing you need to then add to that is food, uh, medication, if you have uh, trekking poles that you prefer to bring, those types of things that we won't include. Um, but otherwise, you will ship to your door ready to go. And then the sidekick will be those same items 
as the ready to go pack, but without the tent, without the cookware, without uh, some of those shared items like fire starter and things. So anyway, look at the website. All of these bundles are customizable. So if you like, I have everything. I have a sleeping bag, but I don't have your other things in your big four. You can take off the sleeping bag and still, uh, if you include a certain amount of items, you'll still get the bundle discount and ship those items to your door as well. So they're very customizable as well. So based on that customizability, I would assume that that means most of your, most of purchases are handled through your website or are people also able to go to brick and mortar stores and purchase them in certain areas or how, how do people acquire them? Yeah, great question. So right now it's through the website. Uh, you can buy individual items on the, on Amazon as well. We have a, a great Amazon store of selection of products. Um, but as far as the full customizability, it's through the website. We are in talk with several major uh, retail uh, locations with several brick and mortar stores right now that want to adapt this into their stores as well. Uh, currently, a store in Scottsdale, Arizona is offering the whole bundle as well as the individual items so you can buy what I just described in their store. But it's a little bit more difficult for the retail place to sell a one SKU part number for, say, $800, $1,000 and take the sleeping bag out and take those yeah, items yeah, off. Yeah, yeah. So you'd have to kind of build it in the store and then they would they'd provide it to you, which we do have uh, solutions for that. Mm-hmm. And later this year, actually probably spring of next year, you'll start to see those introduced in more brick and mortar stores based upon the uh, solution that will be later releasing, which we have planned out and we're talking to a major retailer right now that will will be providing that. So I'm sure people listening who are interested are now wondering, okay, you haven't said, what do these things cost? What do we we want to say about that? What are we looking at in the price here? Yeah. So they called the mini, which is the the little Dean that we'll be releasing here later this year, roughly $400. Your give or take 20, 30 bucks based upon some of the, the solutions you want. And then the highest pack, which is the ready to go, is one thousand. And that's with the included gear. Includes everything, okay. twenty five items. So that includes, you know, a three hundred dollar backpacking tent that's comparable to a six hundred dollar right, backpacking right, right. tent. Includes the backpack, which is two hundred thirty, which is comparable to, you know, three hundred dollar backpack. I think for people in the ultralight space, these numbers do not sound high because they're ultralight backpacks that are five hundred dollars for sure. And itself. people like thousand bucks for everything. Yeah. Well, as you start looking at yeah. what quality and things you're getting. I've done the math. If I were to walk into an RAI today and put together comparable weight and specs of quality, I would be spending $2,400. And and honestly, you probably couldn't even do it in an REI because a lot of the lightweight manufacturers don't distribute through major retailers. You have to buy direct from them. So you end up purchasing from 10 different sources to Absolutely. get everything. And then you're spending hours trying to put it all together. Friends of mine who have, they, as they have aged, have gotten more and more interested in going ultralight for their body parts. There's a lot of research that goes into it. There's a lot of, oh, I bought this pack. Now I realize I hate this pack. Now I'm going to send it back and try to get this other pack. So yeah, it's not just looking at 10 different locations and purchasing from them, but then also researching mm-hmm. all of the other different providers to whittle it down to those few to purchase. Yeah, agreed. Another key item in there we've touched upon earlier is sleeping bag, right? And people don't realize, you know, I can go to Walmart and buy a $30, $50 sleeping bag, right? So why would I be buying yours? Well, all of our sleeping bags are 850 downfill. So it's comparable to some of these high, high high-end sleeping bags that are going to be, you know, starting at $300. 
So our sleeping bags start at $200 and go on up. The highest cost one is our zero degree bag of $400. Yeah, and compresses down quite small. Very, very small. no Walmart bag will ever do. I can tell you from personal experience, as I mentioned (laughs) earlier in this show, a Walmart bag does not compress down to a small size. So you're going to add a couple more pounds compared to ours, and it's going to be big size. And so people are like, well, then how much does your backpack weigh? So a $1,000 backpack with 25 items in it weighs like 17 pounds. Okay, that's yeah, that's very 16 reasonable. to 17 yeah. pounds. 17 with including food with 30 items. So it's very lightweight. So I know besides trying to build the pack that you want to carry, I know that there's also a personal story behind this pack. And you've, you mentioned the mini being the small Dean, and and this is called the Dean Pack, right, which is named for your father, correct? Correct. Do you want to tell us about that a bit? Sure, sure. Yeah. So my dad's name is Dean, and my mom's name is Jean. Dean and (laughs) Jean. Yeah, yeah. So kind of funny that when I started going through name selections, I thought, well, do I call, if I have a women's version or exclusively men's and exclusively women's, do I call them Dean and Jean? Did they carry through with the children? You're Scott. Are the other, do the other kids' names rhyme with yours? No, unfortunately. There are a lot of S's. Most of us brothers' uh, names begin with S, but uh, no. So obviously my mom and dad did not marry each other because of their names, (laughs) nor did their parents talk, you know, saying, we're going to do this. But uh, yeah, my dad's name is Dean. At the beginning of today's discussion, I talked a lot about who he is. Mm-hmm. And I thought there's no better way of honoring who he is than calling not only the backpack by his name, but also the backpack that bundles everything you need. Yeah, and you you mentioned that. I mean, before you and he had talked about possibly starting a business, was a pack of this type something that you had discussed, or did you had you not reached that point We yet? didn't yet fully reach that point. We talked about providing everything you need to get out and go, and my dad is a, like ultra, ultra lighter, and so he had bins and bins of all these things in his garage, uh, he would cut his toothbrush in half. He was kind of oh, that kind of guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was weighing sure. everything. Way, and yeah, absolutely. And... and so it only made sense that we would have put this all together. We just hadn't gotten that far yet before he passed away. So what do you think his verdict would be on the pack? He said he still need to shave off three more pounds <laughs> or something? <laughs> he would. Yeah, yeah. And I said, Dad, we can't all afford that, you know. You know, I, I can't afford the Dyneema materials and pay $1,000 for a tent. So we made a good balance between affordability and uh, functionality. Yeah, I still had to make it affordable to keep the pack under $1,000. Yeah, I could double the price if I took off three or four more pounds. Yes, uh, I know the thing you mentioned earlier is that part of the point of the company is to try to build, you know, lightweight gear that is affordable. And before I met you and you and I was introduced to you in the near zero name, I assumed that name was completely in regard to the weight of the pack. Uh, but I could see that it maybe also could be in relation to what you hope the price would be since you're trying to also make it affordable. Yeah. Is that where the name came from? Or? Yeah. So originally it was lightweight, mm-hmm. but also fully keeping in the mind burden, you know, complexity, taking and eliminating what you have on you. And so, yes, there is a feather inside of our logo. Mm-hmm. That feather symbolizes lightweight, mm-hmm. but it's also simplicity, near zero effort, near zero complexity. Near zero, as you also mentioned, just making sure that we not only take out the weight, but also uh, some of the other aspects of uh, that, that complexity mm-hmm. factor. So you mentioned this is three years now, right? That that the company has mm-hmm. existed? Yep. And you went full-time, was it two years ago, you said? Yeah, yeah, just over two years ago. So then that sounds like things are going well if you're able to make this your full-time job. What should we expect from the company in the future? What are the plans ahead? So we've been primarily D2C, which is direct-to-consumer. 
uh, for the last three years, and now we're branching more into the retail space. So we want this to be easily accessible for all. And of course, it's very easy to mix and match and create it online, but a lot of people want to see it in a store. They want to fit it. They want to try it out. And so that's why we're branching more into the retail space. Uh, with some of that takes a cost. So you'd mentioned yeah. near zero being, you know, near zero cost too. Sure, we want to make it affordable for all. But there are cheaper options out there. Absolutely. It's not a zero cost or even the cheapest solution out there. You can create a lower cost pack. Now, can you get it with better gear and higher quality stuff at that price? It's really, really, really hard to do with some of the individual products as a bundle. I don't think so. So where they're going to find us, yes, they'll find us more in retail locations. They'll find us now partnering with uh, people like scouting organizations. Uh, this last week, we are the headline news of Scouting Magazine. Actually, this week, uh, Boy Scouts of America will be releasing us also. By the time people listen to this, it should have already been released within uh, Scout Life. So the Boy Scout magazines and uh, trying to work with places like Philmont. We're already in partnership with uh, Subaru. So Subaru carries now our uh, one of our products, the Pillow, on their website. And so we're looking at also partnering with more vehicle manufacturers as a get-out-and-go bag, a bug-out bag, ready-to-go pack that you can put in the trunk of your car. So for a lot of people like you traveling the, the United States, you don't have a lot of trunk space. And so you'll start seeing us now partnering with more adventure people, outfitters, people that do multiple day adventure uh, backcountry tours and things like that. Yeah. And one of the things I can definitely vouch for, because you were saying, you know, there's a certain price you're just going to have to pay if you want quality gear that is lightweight. And and I can definitely say the lesson I learned that I think most people learn is when you first start getting into these activities, you try to buy the cheapest products you can find and you replace them constantly. Mm -hmm. They fail you constantly. They don't meet your demands ever. And at one point you realize, oh, if I had just invested in better, more expensive gear early on, I would have saved way more money because you end up spending a lot more replacing bad gear than a piece of gear that lasts a long time and is fully functional the whole time. Yeah, completely agree. And, you know, not everyone can just throw a thousand bucks out, you right, know, even right. if they're saying, I want to start right. Right. And so that's difficult to do. So if you want a beginning point, I recommend getting the backpack. It's roughly $200 if you don't already have a backpack. Then you can start compartmentalizing things and just adding things as you go. Or if you already have a backpack, start with a tent. This is an excellent lightweight tent that's under $300. Or cookware, you know, little mini stoves, $25. Just start somewhere where you're starting to drop that weight. And slowly, hopefully, you're like I did, you're getting rid of some of these uh, heavier products that are just wearing out. So as you establish yourselves within the, within the various communities that you're attempting to, a few years from now, what would you like to, the consumer to think of when they think of near zero? Or what do you hope users are saying about your products? I want them to say, that was really easy. And I love my gear. And I've been using it for two years now. And I haven't had any issues with it. I want it dependable. I want that user to say, I've used that tent eight times already in the last two years, and the zipper still works. Yeah, that would be very, very helpful as two people 
Erica and I, <laughs> who have been fighting with tent zippers for the last few years. For sure. You know, and there's a part of user error that happens with that. You know, do you zip it all the way up when you stow it away so you avoid sand and rocks getting inside of there? But we've, on our tent, for example, we're on the fourth iteration. We've had that out for three years. So customers and, and users like you that are using it give us that feedback and we incorporate it into a better, better product. So our first tent, for example, was really, really small, three millimeter zippers. Like we're going to get super duper small. And we realized, you know what, we had more returns, more user issues. And so we added a, a thicker or a bigger zipper on it, higher quality zipper. It's five millimeters now. So we've seen very little complaints with that one now. And then just adding other little features and quality improvements. So every time we'll, we'll take that customer feedback and incorporating it. So two years from now, yeah, I want people to say, you know what, they've really dialed this in. And I love how easy it was to get this, how lightweight it is, and it's very high quality stuff. Yeah, and then I think the last thing I'll ask you about before we get closer to like our final comments for the show is your family. So you have five children, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, what age ranges are they across right now? Yeah, my oldest is 20 years old, okay, a boy, then... and my youngest is seven years old, a okay. boy. And I've got three in between. All teenagers, so, three girls. So, so what's in the future for the for your family at this moment? I mean, you're making a lot of products that they can make use of. Yeah, no, we love camping. We just all went, camped all together, the five of us, which is so rare. About a month ago during summer break, and had a great time. My teenagers, of course, it's it's a lot easier to get my seven year old out than my seventeen year old right, right. out. You got to fight with their their burgeoning they, independence. Yeah, no, the friends and I get it. I get it. You know, they get busy with school and things. Yeah, it's so fun. The future of a family is hopefully we we all look back on those memories. I've been camping individually with every one of my kids, with some of the kids together, with as a family, and I love those memories. And I hope my kids have felt the same way. And I think they do. And then carry it on to their children. And carry it on well. to their yeah. children. Yeah, exactly. And trying to teach that independence with the kids that, you know, my seven-year-old, when he, since he's been five, he carries his own kit. He carries his own gear. So when he gets in the tent, he feels independent. Dad, mm -hmm. I know how to set up my own pad. Dad, let me put out this. Let me do that. You know, he wants to cook things and he wants to, you know, he's seven and now he whittles with a knife. Mm -hmm. You know, we've had done a lot of knife safety things and I want them to know how to do that. I want them to know how to respect the forest, how to properly dispose of waste, how to extinguish a fire. I hope they carry that on too with their, their kids and other friends and other people they go out with. Yeah, and one of the big reasons behind this show is that I think there's so many valuable things we learn by taking ourselves outdoors. And amongst those things are independence, um, confidence, mm -hmm. respect, self-respect, um, respect for the environment, for other people. Like, I think there's so many valuable things to gain there. And so I, I think it, I love when I talk to people who do have children and they're bringing them up in that world. And, and I think starting them early, like you've done, sets them up for great success mm -hmm. later in life across the board, in the outdoors and in the front country and everywhere else. So, so I think it's awesome that you're doing that. Well, thank you. Yeah, and I think especially today with technology and phones, we need to detach from that. We need a chance to just get away from it, you know, adults and kids. And so the outdoors and backpacking especially is a perfect opportunity for that. A lot of car camping spots, you still are within range of cell phone. But when I get in the backcountry and I'm with my family and kids, I have their full attention. And that's so unique. And if you get to the point where they don't miss it, which I'm sure happens every <laughs> once in a while. Or that's, even that's, myself. Yeah, <laughs> right. you know, it's like, oh, I can't get that email or I can't get that text out. Or, you know, you feel almost naked sometimes mm -hmm. or, you know, exposed because 
you, you can't stay connected. And I think we all need a chance to do that every mm-hmm. once in a while. We need a quick detox. Yeah, it's, it's okay to spend time with your own thoughts. Mm-hmm. And so the way that I always finish this show is that I ask if you have some final thought you'd like to leave everyone with before we go. Sure, yeah. The, the thought is, you know, regardless if you get near zero brand or you get a, another brand, get in the outdoors. And that's why I love the theme of your podcast is just encouraging people to get out, get out and go, regardless of where you're at or what stage you're at in and learn how to respect the forest. Please, please leave the forest in better condition than when you left it. If you see some trash, take it out, get rid of it. And please don't leave more into the forest. We're now partnered with Leave No Trace. And I love that organization, what they're trying to do. And so we don't want more forest fires. People uh, started fires, right? And just get out, respect the forest, use it, use it a chance to connect with people you love. And I think that's the key. And that's why I love what I do. That's why I love the brand and the whole mission behind Near Zero is making it easier for people and enabling people to do that. And so if you feel overwhelmed that, oh, I can't hike, I'm not in the condition to do that, or I can't take that much time off, start somewhere. Do a day hike. Get out with your family. Do something. Sleep somewhere close. Sleep in your backyard if you have to in order to try out a tent. Just figure it out. you, You learn independence. You learn how to learn something new and explore the beauty of what the outdoors provides. I cannot disagree with anything you said, and I think you've encapsulated the whole reason we're all out here right now. So I want to thank you for meeting me out here. Thanks for being on the show. And hopefully this was an enjoyable experience for you. For sure. Thank you, Jason. And I love that we're doing it here in the outdoors and not in our offices. That's right. I think that (laughs) you drove all the way from California (laughs) to meet me in, you know, a backcountry area. And uh, I really commend you for that. So this has been a wonderful experience to be looking and seeing the birds or listening to the birds, seeing the trees, seeing the clouds. It's like we're going to get a little rain today, too. This is uh, beautiful, and uh, being out here and feeling it's great. Plastics were a wonderful invention that have a myriad of uses, but we have unfortunately become overly dependent on them in our society. And now we use them in everything and they end up in our oceans, they end up in our food, they end up in our bodies. And that's why I wanna tell you about Sun & Swell Foods. They're the nation's first online plastic-free grocery store. They have an assortment of delicious, healthy foods and plastic-free, and get this, compostable packaging. If you don't have access to composting, that's cool because they also have a program where you can send back all your packaging and they will compost it for you. Their foods are 100% plant-based and vegan, 100% gluten-free, and 100% real food. No added preservatives, no added unnecessary ingredients. So if you are looking for a more planet-friendly pantry, shop Sun & Swell and get 20% off site-wide when you go to sunandswellfoods.com and use code GOPODCAST at checkout. That is 20% off your entire order when you use GOPODCAST at sunandswellfoods.com. 
So I know there are mornings where I think, oh, it'd be great to have a nice big fruit smoothie, but I don't feel like breaking out the big blender. I don't want to clean the blender afterwards. And so I just end up eating a bowl of cereal. Well, someone has come along to help us solve this problem. And that is BlendJet specifically BlendJet 2. BlendJet 2 is portable, so you can blend up a smoothie at work, protein shake at the gym, or even a margarita on the beach. It's small enough to fit in a cup holder, but powerful enough to blast through tough ingredients like ice and frozen fruit with ease. BlendJet 2 is whisper quiet, so you can make your morning smoothie without waking up the whole house. Lasts for 15 plus blends and recharges quickly via USB-C. And best of all, BlendJet 2 cleans itself. Just blend water with a drop of soap and you are good to go. And if you're thinking, oh, but is it beautiful? Does it come in the color that I like? Well, more than likely, the answer to that is yes, because they've got 30 plus colors and patterns to choose from. You could even pick Urban Camo if that's what you're into. So what are you waiting for? Go to blendjet.com, grab yours today, and be sure to use the promo code GOPODCAST to get 12% off your order and free two-day shipping. No other portable blender on the market comes close to the quality, power, and innovation of the BlendJet 2. They guarantee you'll love it or your money back. So blend anytime, anywhere with the BlendJet 2 Portable Blender. Go to BlendJet.com and use the code GOPODCAST to get 12% off your order and free two-day shipping. Shop today and get the best deal ever. So Scott let me know that the Little Dean, the 20 liter pack for children, has indeed been designed and launched. There is currently a Kickstarter running through December 6th. And if you're interested in that pack and you back it on Kickstarter, you'll have it in time for Christmas at a discounted price. Scott also let me know that they're having a Black Friday sale, November 22nd, where you can get 35% off of their products. So I'd encourage you to go check out their gear and see if it's right for you. I can tell you that personally, for the last few months, I have used the sleeping pad and the tent repeatedly, and I am a big fan of those two products. And now it's that time of the show where I invite all of you to go to our website, gogetoutside.com, take a look at all of the improvements that I've made, but also go to this episode, 107 with Scott Jensen. You can see photographs of him in action links to everything we talked about in today's show, and also some embedded video, including that video of how to make eggs inside an orange peel. And if you want to get in touch with us here at the show, if you have something important to tell us, if you want to let us know your thoughts on this episode, past episodes, future episodes, there are a number of things you can do. You can always email me, jason at gogetoutside.com, or You can send us a text or leave a voicemail at 818-925-0106. And if you would, please go to your podcast purveyor of choice. Make sure you are subscribed to the show, rate and review it, and please share it with someone who you think would enjoy it. And again, if you want to follow us on Instagram and YouTube, it is Go Get Outside Podcast at both of those places. And of course, if you're at our website, you can find all of these things linked there. Next time on the show. Come back December 1st for the return of Kat and Craig. Some of you may remember them from episode 34, seven years ago, when they were about to begin a year-long trip living out of a suburban, traveling across the United States. 
Well, in September, while Erica and I were on our own road trip around the U.S., we visited them at their home in Rhode Island and recorded this update. So we'll find out what it was like living in that suburban for a year and also what their future looks like now that they have become parents. December 1st, the return of Cat and Craig. See you then. <laughs>